We have to understand rhetoric has meaning. And unless we don't facilitate the assistance to Ukraine right now, it may hurt us in the future. It is the first week of August, and welcome to our second episode of our summer podcast series, Breaking Chains, Fighting the New Global Repressors. I'm Lester Munson, your host. All over the world today, we are witnessing nation states such as China, Russia, and Iran cracking down on populations within their borders and expanding their repressive aims internationally. In this summer series, I will talk to a range of special guests about the stark reality we now face, as the rapid development of technology makes it easier for national actors to commit widespread human rights abuses? What can we do to confront these abuses and protect global security? Today's episode will feature Michael Sawkew, Executive Vice President of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America. Michael has spent years advocating for Ukrainians and has worked tirelessly to support the Ukrainian community here in the United States. He has a deep knowledge of the human rights violations and atrocities occurring on the ground in Ukraine since the Russian invasion in February, and we are thrilled to have him join us to share his insights sites. One warning. This episode contains descriptions of graphic violence that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener's discretion is advised. Michael, thanks a lot for joining Fault Lines today. Uh, Lester, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, You have a great podcast and uh, it's uh, truly an honor to be a guest on your podcast uh, today. Well, we're thrilled to have you here. Um, And I know the the topics we're going to discuss are difficult ones, but they're ones that I think are on the minds of of Americans as they see what's been unfolding in Ukraine since uh, late February when Russia invaded. Let's kind of start big picture. What's your overall assessment of uh, how things have been going in Ukraine? And in particular, dive into for, for our audience the the crimes that Russia has been committing against Ukrainians in the process of this invasion. You know, Lester, it's a, that, that, that in a sense uh, is a loaded question in terms of how are things going in Ukraine. Um, Ukraine has its good days um, when it's uh, combating the aggressor, and obviously it can have its bad days. Um, but the, the, the worst out of all of this, what has come to light in the past five months, is to, to get to the uh, latter part of your question in terms of the war crimes that have been happening. We we, we know what Russia is and as aggressor state. We've seen this since 2014 um, when uh, Russia annexed, illegally annexed Crimea. We know that they came into Donbass. We know about the war crimes and the crimes against humanity that have happened um, uh, in those two particular uh, regions of Ukraine. But also we know uh, Russia as an aggressor state. So Russia as an aggressor state um, uh, invaded Georgia in 2008. Those crimes against humanity um, have been have been there as well. So uh, the the past five months in Ukraine have have really shown the world what Russia and what Moscow and what the Kremlin are are all about. It's not just a kinetic war. We see the kinetic war um, again since 2014, specifically in Ukraine. Obviously, since February 24th of of 2022, um, in the past five plus months. But we, we, what we also see is just the veracity of the way that they're going about um, killing off Ukrainians. So if you think about genocide and that then the top 10 reasons, the top the stages of genocide, as they're called, there are 10 stages of genocide. And Putin, prior to even invading on February 24th, on February 21st, had his address to the Russian people. And he basically classified a, a, a unique example of genocide. 
There is he classified the Ukrainians as Nazis. There is symbolism associated with it. There is discrimination associated with it. There is dehumanization associated with it. The organizational aspect of going about the war, the polarization of uh, of the society, the preparation for the war, the actual persecution, which we're seeing on a daily basis now for the past five months, the extermination of Ukrainians and obviously its denial. So this is what's been going on for the past five months. I, I must say that we as a Ukrainian-American community and the organization that I represent as being the umbrella organization of the Ukrainian-American community, we're extremely, extremely grateful to the United States government for everything that it has done. Everything that it has done in the prelude to the war up to February 24th of 2022, but also since. And if you see what's happening on the battlefield right now, Russia is not advancing as they used to advance. Um, and not as quickly, or if they are advancing, it's not as quickly as they think that they would like to. And it's based upon all of the defensive military assistance that has been granted to Ukraine. Also, at the same time, it's it's the veracity and it's the um, the resolve of the Ukrainian people. They know the aggressor now. They've seen it for the past eight years. The world may have turned a blind eye to a degree for the past eight years, but I think with the, the, the rest of the world's help, with NATO as an ally, um, that assistance that's going to Ukraine, it's making and it's turning um, the, the, the tide in what's happening um, on the battlefield. Uh, uh, totally agree. Uh, Michael, before we, before we kind of dive into the, the particulars of what's happened on the ground in Ukraine, uh, let, let's, let's dive in a little deeper on something you referenced, which is the rhetoric coming out of Moscow from Putin about Ukraine not being a country, Ukrainians not really being a people, this kind of revisionist history about the origins of nation states in the region all seemed a little uh, kind of disconnected from reality to, to those of us who were following at the time. How important is that rhetoric to what Russia's doing on the ground in Ukraine. Well, it's it's also one of the aspects of war itself, um, Lester. If you think about war, it's not just a kinetic war, but it's also a misinformation war. It's a disinformation war. And, and, and that has been emanating from the Kremlin ever since Ukraine's independence from the Soviet Union in August of 1991, which were coming up on the 31st anniversary um, in a few weeks. But even in the prelude to the war, as I had mentioned earlier, in terms of Russia, uh, in terms of Putin classifying what Ukrainians are as Nazis and so forth and so on, this is just his opportunity to try to show to his own people that Ukraine, quote unquote, as a country, A, does not exist, or if it does exist, it's a failed state. And you, your Russian, my, my, my Russian people do not look at Ukraine as any type of example of what potentially could happen um, in, in Russia. So he's obviously protecting his own vested interests here. He's protecting himself in, in, in the power that he uh, that he wields. He's protecting his oligarchs. He's protecting his cronies. And that's exactly what the Russian Federation is. It's, it, it's uh, as as Senator McCain used to say, it's nothing more than a country uh, disguised as a gas station. So um, uh, th- this is the reality that we have to deal with. And, and, and when you're talking about energy, when you're talking about Russia, how are they actually funding this particular war? As statistics are saying that it takes about a billion dollars for the Russian Federation to wage its war um, in Ukraine. Most of that money, a very large percentage of that money is coming from gas and oil rev- uh, revenues that from our um, allies in, in Western Europe, as a matter of fact. So 
energy diversification has to come into play here eventually as we as we know what Russia is all about and how that they wield disinformation as as part of their program for for waging war how they use energy um, uh, as as a tool of war as well um, these are all the factors that we need to um, to understand to contemplate in terms of fighting up back against the aggressor state broadly speaking in terms of what Russian troops are actually doing to Ukrainians, Give us a description of the war crimes that have happened and are happening right now. Well, I I think I'll begin with with the latest example. And the latest example is the prisoners of war that were taken in Mariupol in the steel plant Azovstal. And they had captured them. They had held them in a facility somewhere in the Donetsk region. Um, They were tortured. We know this, that they were tortured, that they were beaten. Um, And obviously what happened over the weekend in terms of the reports that they had actually just bombed that facility so that there is no evidence of those prisoners of war that, that, that that were tortured. The greatest example, obviously, worldwide right now is the the, the city of Bucha, uh, the suburbs of, of Kyiv itself. If world leaders that are traveling now to Ukraine, that are traveling to Kyiv, they make it a point to go to Bucha to see firsthand um, what 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 trap what transpired there, what happened there. And everybody comes back um, in their press interviews, in their press um, conferences comes back and says that they have never seen atrocities of that magnitude, atrocities of people being shot in the back of the head as their hands were tied, Um, uh, individuals that were being raped, Um, uh, a grandmother of 50 some odd years old was raped by by a Russian uh, soldier, 18 years old. And, And the grandmother basically said, I could either be your mother or your grandmother. Do you understand what you are doing? Um, there doesn't seem to be a, a consciousness to them. Um, and it's unfortunate that Bucha is, is um, the classic example, but those examples are happening on a daily basis. And in and, and Ukraine, I know, with the assistance from the, from, from the West, whether it's from the United States or other Western countries, are actually documenting all of this evidence. One of the greatest things about this particular war, as compared to, say, the war, the last war and major war in Europe, that being World War II, is everything is documentable right now by a cell phone. So you can document these the, the, the atrocities that are happening just by the camera itself, by photos immediately gets transmitted throughout the world. And I think that that's the the. The next step in terms of showing that there is um, uh, that you are held responsible for you, for the atrocities that are being committed in Ukraine. Um, it's it, it's one matter to bring them to trial. Obviously, it's another matter if, if, if you can actually um, um, hold them accountable for wherever that they w- w- will be in the world. But for the world to recognize all these atrocities and, if anything, the genocide that's happening in Ukraine right now. Who has the responsibility to investigate and prosecute these war crimes? So the, the, it, it begins, obviously, in Ukraine. Um, and, and the Office of the Prosecutor General has a team already established, has a, a bureau within the Prosecutor General's office that are going throughout Ukraine, documenting all the evidence. And again, a lot of this evidence is just by cell phone videos, um, by, by, um, uh, by different types of interviews with, with witnesses. Um, and they are working with um, our Department of Justice. Um, the attorney general just went to Ukraine several weeks ago and met with uh, Ukraine's prosecutor general and basically described the opportunities of collaboration, of helping the Ukrainians in the documentation process, um, in the investig- uh, investigative process as well. 
and bringing all of that information to the ICC. Now, the ICC, I think, is, is very important here as well. And, and the ICC has already had numerous types of rulings when it came to uh, um, the war in Ukraine in the past eight years, not for the past five months, but in the past eight years, documenting what Ukraine had already done in terms of documenting the crimes against humanity against the indigenous Crimean Tatars in, 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 uh, in Crimea, um, those Ukrainian um, citizens that were of various types of religious backgrounds that were not uh, Russian Orthodox in the Donbass region. All of that has been documented. It, it's been brought to the ICC. The ICC has made its ruling that, yes, we will take this up. Um, and I think that was a very good start or a foundational aspect into what can happen in the future in cooperation with the ICC. Now, of course, the United States is not um, a, a party to the International Criminal Court, but the Biden administration is offering some assistance. What do you think it is the U.S. can do best to help the ICC in this effort? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Lester, because uh, I, I've been asked this question several times in terms of, yes, we are not privy to, to the ICC, um, but the, the United States can and Ukraine is. So at least the United States can provide any type of assistance necessary for Ukraine to bring these uh, particular, these investigations to, to a case at the ICC. I think that's very important here to note is that this is not the United States being directly involved with the ICC. This is the United States and other countries in the West being directly involved with the Ukrainians to assist the Ukrainians as they go through the investigations, as they go through the documentation process, as they go through the case preparation, um, and, and, and to bring that um, to, uh, um, to the Hague. So I think it's very, very important for us to understand that. There are various bills, as a matter of fact, in Congress right now that are um, uh, privy to this that would allow and, and provide assistance, uh, uh, appropriations for the Ukrainians to help them in this process. And that, I think, is the most important what is necessary right now. If you think about what's happening in Ukraine for the past five months of a war, five plus months of a war, Ukraine's GDP has, has, has fallen tremendously um, by, by tens and tens of percentage points. So it's just lucky enough that a few days ago, the first export of Ukrainian um, corn left Odessa in, in, through the Black Sea. Um, hopefully others will follow suit. But at the same time, for the past five months, if you haven't had that export, if you haven't had your factories producing because of the constant threat of Russian missiles and bombs um, and so forth, um, Ukraine needs as much assistance as possible, economic assistance, but the assistance as well with its prosecutor general to handle the extreme amount of caseloads when it comes to the documentation. And uh, if I can make a footnote, the information that I receive is that there are about two to 300 cases a day that are being uh, investigated when it comes to Russian war crimes just in the past five months alone. That's amazing. Tell us what your organization, the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, is doing in this regard. So the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America is a representative organization of the Ukrainian um, uh, American community. It was formed in 1940. As a matter of fact, it was formed in Washington, D.C., um, to deal with the displaced persons coming from Europe at that particular time, as Ukraine was between the Russian Empire and it was between um, uh, Nazi Germany and Ukraine was caught in the middle. And, and with all these displaced peoples coming to the United States, we, the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, uh, formulated itself at that particular time to assist 
those displaced people um, uh, and to find them the, the, the necessary uh, benefits and housing here within, uh, within the United States. Fast forward 80 years, or I should say even fast forward maybe 50 years, when we were working um, tirelessly within any set administration, within any Congress, to bring as much light and information as possible about the plight of Ukrainians. At that time, in Soviet times, you had religious uh, persecution, you had human rights prose- uh, persecution as well, bringing that to attention. And then in the past 30 years, it's building upon the strategic partnership which exists between Ukraine and the United States. Now, the United States doesn't have strategic partnerships with every country of the world. It's, it's a very few and limited number of strategic partners that the United States has. Ukraine is fortunate to be one of them. Um, And we in the past five months have done an extraordinary amount of work within the greater Ukrainian American community to A, provide humanitarian assistance to Ukraine. Um, There must be tens and tens of millions of dollars that have been provided in in humanitarian assistance um, to Ukraine to help those that have A, either fled the country outside the borders the internally displaced um, within Ukraine, which are many million as well, as they flee their their bombed out cities and villages and try to find refuge in other parts of Ukraine. Um, Those that haven't necessarily fled those bombed out villages or towns um, need access to food, to water, to medicines and so forth. Um, So that's been our our priority. But obviously, it's in, in terms of the advocacy of continuing the assistance for Ukraine, whether it's defensive military assistance, uh, economic assistance, or obviously this assistance when it comes to um, helping the prosecutor general um, and any uh, legal uh, authorities in Ukraine to investigate all these particular war crimes and crimes against humanity. You you talked earlier about the amazingly high number of war crimes each day that are happening, over 200 in Ukraine. Uh, you talked about how uh, people with their cell phones now can document uh, what is what is happening or what has happened to kind of start to begin to build these cases. What are some of the other challenges to uh, successfully prosecuting someone for a war crime? The most important challenge, Lester, is timing in all of this, is, is it takes a while for the investigation to happen. It takes a while to bring all of the documentation um, together to make a Um, a case before the ICC. And I think the sooner that something like that gets done, um, the the easier it will be for the world to to further understand um, the true atrocities that are going on, uh, the the, the true crimes that are going on in Ukraine, when they see that this is being brought before the International Criminal Court. Um, We see ourselves here in the United States that in the first few weeks of the war, it was a 24-7 operation when it came to Ukraine in terms of the news networks. Everybody was plugged in, um, looking at the latest bombs that were falling, looking at the, the, the movement of troops and so forth and so on. Five months later, it's not necessarily the top story anymore. It's not on the top fold of the Washington Post anymore. But at the same time, those atrocities are still happening on a daily basis. And frankly speaking, even though what I mentioned earlier, that Ukraine is making some gains, but at the same time, those atrocities coming on, on behalf of the Russian side, on behalf of the, the, the aggressor side, are just becoming more and more numerous. So until actually Ukraine, Bucha is a, is a classic example of what I see as being a, a, a deterrence to all of this as well in terms of how do you prosecute the war crimes. Bucha is a, is, a, is a classic example because Ukraine actually liberated that area. But how and how quickly can you liberate Mariupol, Ukraine? 
How quickly can you uh, liberate other parts of, of, of eastern Ukraine or, or southeastern Ukraine? Um, and until you do, then you're never going to get the full extent of the uh, Russian war crimes that are going on. So I think that timing is, is, is very important here. Getting as much information and evidence to the ICC in terms of uh, a cohesive case and making sure that Ukraine uh, regains all of its uh, all of its uh, captured temporary captured land uh, from the aggressor states, so that they can start documenting the crimes that have happened there. Michael, how realistic is it to think about uh, holding Putin himself responsible for the war crimes that are happening in Ukraine? I think I'm not I'm not an attorney by no means whatsoever, but I think that it as a symbolic gesture, I think it has to be brought to the ICC's attention um, in whatever capacity and whatever form necessary. Um, that that Putin has to be brought um, to 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 some type of justice, whether it's in absentia, whatever that the that the degree happens. Um, but but if 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 we don't, if we only think that we're prosecuting the lowest level of of Russian military personnel that came through Ukraine and did these particular horrible um, acts and crimes, um, there there are also that there's the officer corps who are the ones that ordered this to happen. Um, there's the higher general staff who obviously are the ones that are carrying out the plans and the strategy. And the number one strategist out of all of them is, is Vladimir Putin, the dictator himself. So it, it, it's not just on the lowest of levels. It has to it has to reach to the highest of echelons as well within the Russian government. Let's talk about recent history. Uh, of course, the thing that people remember most are probably the uh, war crimes tribunals in Nuremberg after World War II. That was uh, coming up on 80 years ago. There are more recent examples in the Balkans and in West Africa of special uh, international courts being set up for war crimes. Tell us about how those more recent examples can be significant as we go forward here, hopefully with prosecuting Russians for what they've done in Ukraine. I think it's a, I think it's a great example, um, Lester. And I did not mention this earlier, but but I wanted to, and I, in a sense, I alluded to this in terms of how quickly can you get this information um, to to the ICC for for these cases. And what I had mentioned earlier as well in terms of um, uh, evidence that has already been uh, presented in terms of the discrimination, in terms of the crimes against humanity that have happened in the Crimean Peninsula or in, in, in Donbass for the past eight years of the war. Um, I, I, I think it, it, this, this behooves, if anything else like that, a, a, a larger look at the, at the framework of what is happening. So we're not just going to be prosecuting war crimes for the past five plus months or until the end of the the, the, the latest conflict and war. Um, but we, we had a war of the past eight years. And I think having some type of special um, international tribunal on this, um, I, I think would be fit the situation. Again, it's it, it, it's not so much of, of, of just bringing this for, for the attention of the world of just what is happening in Ukraine, but you have to make this as a case example for other dictators throughout the world, that they cannot be held responsible uh, that they have to be held responsible um, for for their actions. And unless we understand that having this on a larger international tribunal type type um, uh, basis, um, then unfortunately, we may uh, be faced with other types of dictators um, using this as an example to advance their own personal interest in said country, in said regions of the world um, that are only going to be of detriment to, to humanity itself. Now, Ukraine itself uh, uh, prosecuted a, a Russian soldier a few weeks ago 
found him guilty of crimes, sentenced him to life in prison. Are, should we expect more of that kind of legal proceeding to happen? Or is there going to be a perhaps a shift here to a more international type approach? And does that matter? I think I think it's a it's a two pronged approach. I think the Ukrainians themselves, um, again, for all the evidence that has been documented or is being um, documented right now, I think it's very important for the Ukrainians themselves to bring about these types of trials in on the territory of Ukraine. Um, Ukraine has its own legal system. Ukraine has its own uh, judicial system, and I think it's very very important um, for for the Ukrainians to go through this so that. The citizens, the Ukrainian citizens themselves, the Ukrainian people themselves will understand um, that our legal system is working um, to protect us. Um, but also this these are such egregious examples. And again, bringing two to three hundred um, um, cases or investigations on a daily basis, um, th- th- this takes on on a worldwide proportion here. So I think it's a matter of uh, of doing it internally, domestically, um, uh, for the Ukrainians themselves, but also uh, just because of the larger nature of this and what we had mentioned earlier. Do we bring Putin to to prosecution? I think that needs to be done on the international basis. What what role, if any, are uh, other international humanitarian or development or assistance type organizations? playing in the, the identification of and the prosecution of war crimes in Ukraine? Are there other NGOs and, and other groups that are, are providing assistance here? It's a, that's a great question, because very grateful. There, there, there's only so much that even us as a Ukrainian-American community can, can provide in terms of assistance. We, we have our own Ukrainian-American attorneys. Um, they, they, they have already um, donated some of their time and, and um, uh, any type of, of, of support that they can give to the Ukrainians. But there are larger international organizations, such as Human Rights Watch, such as Amnesty International, um, that actually have been uh, in Ukraine, have documented a lot of uh, the particular evidence that's out there. And I think that it working hand in hand for the Ukrainians to work hand in hand with these types of internationally recognized organizations, um, Human Rights Watch um, and, and Amnesty International have been documenting uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity throughout the entire globe, whether it's in, in, in African countries and Asian countries, South American countries and, and, and the like. So I think it's very important for Ukraine to work with them. They have the knowledge, they have the expertise um, and bringing that um, together into a larger package of um, presenting all this evidence um, um, to for a case within the ICC. And uh, what can average Americans, you know, whether they're Ukrainian Americans or or just Americans who are concerned about what's what's happening there, what can they do uh, to help in this effort, if anything? It, 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 this is this is a, a, the classic case of, of uh, being so far away from 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 a war. Um, does it really um, is it is it really in my purview as as the average American citizen? What can I do to to assist in the war effort? There are many things, um, in particular, humanitarian assistance. It's not just us as Ukrainian American organizations, um, but but the 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 average Kiwanis Club, um, the average Catholic society um, uh, does its fundraisers and and, and sends uh, assistance to Ukraine. So I think it's very important to to be as involved as possible. Um, I, I just happened to be at a farmers market this past weekend, and there was a stand that said, "Please help Ukraine." 
And it was the Farmers Markets Association that, that set up their own regular stand um, uh, as, and on behalf of all the businesses that partake in this particular uh, uh, farmers market. And they're the ones that are providing assistance to Ukraine as well. So I think that we have to understand that right now, since we are so interconnected, we are so interconnected through amazing technologies that we have right now, um, communication um, possibilities that we never thought would be possible before. Um, I, I, I think this is the, the, the opportunity for us to realize that we're not just American citizens, we are citizens of the world. And if you remember the mindset of us in World War II, um, that we're doing this because we're doing this um, um, to, to, to alleviate aggression throughout the world, whether it was in the Eastern uh, uh, Front or on the Western Front. Um, but we did this, obviously, with the mindset and with the purview to make the world a, 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 a better and a safer place. And that's exactly, I think, what, um, what we as Ukrainian community organizations, uh, us in particular at the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, we're doing this advocacy because it, it, this just doesn't stop in Ukraine. And I'll give you a, a, a prime example as well is, is, is Putin, one of his diatribes said, well, Ukraine is, 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 too, is, is getting too close to NATO and we don't want NATO on our, on our doorstep. We don't want it um, as bordering our, our country, the Russian Federation. But interesting how that, that actually backtracked and how actually that, that has worked against him, the war in Ukraine, because now you have Finland um, vying for NATO membership, which they were a peaceful, neutral country to that time. And it's going to have the largest, if not with the United States, with Alaska, but it will have one of the largest uh, borders with, with uh, a soon-to-be NATO country. So if we have to realize that this just doesn't stay within the purview and with the, within the boundaries of Ukraine, that this has international implications as well. Um, and with that, um, uh, Putin himself several weeks ago in a speech said that he considers himself to be the modern 21st century version of Peter the Great. Well, Peter the Great, in terms of Russian history, was the one that expanded the Russian Empire at that particular time from its smaller principalities of Moscow and St. Petersburg into the Baltics, into Poland, into Finland, um, and, and, and uh, also into other parts of, of uh, Southeastern Europe. So we have to understand rhetoric has meaning. And unless we don't um, uh, facilitate the assistance to Ukraine right now, it may hurt us in the future. Michael, let me let me ask you one kind of closing question here. And I'm, I'm really not sure what you're going to say, but uh, are are you getting any kind of positive help or messages from uh, human rights groups in Russia or from Russian Americans who are horrified by, by what they're seeing? I deal a lot with with um, several Russian um, uh, Americans that are that have been opposed to Putin basically since he came to power in in, in the late nineties anyway. Um, so I, I I deal with them. Um, I, I I deal with with um, other organizations that um, have their interaction with different types of of human rights organizations within uh, uh, the Russian Federation. Um, I think that that is necessary. I think that needs to be expanded. But we also have to think on how do we help those Russian organizations to expand their dynamics within uh, the Federation themselves, because they're the ones that are being the, the, the leadership of those various human rights organizations are being jailed. Um, they're being they're being taxed um, so that their organization cannot exist anymore. They're not giving the licenses um, for for the formation of their businesses and so forth and so on. So I think it's it, it's a matter of, again, 
in this collective genre of how we can assist Ukraine. It's assisting Ukraine in the kinetic aspect. It's assisting Ukraine with the disinformation aspect emanating from the Kremlin. But it's also um, uh, assisting those Russians that have the opportunity to try to speak up. And if you, if I, if I can make a parallel, if we think about what happened during the Soviet times, during the Soviet times, we had an informational uh, war and we had an informational campaign emanating from the West. And it emanated through the radio waves, much like right now. It emanated through Voice of America and it emanated through Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. And it broadcast into those parts of the Warsaw Pact and the, and, and the then uh, constituent republics of the Soviet, of the former Soviet Union that yes, you do have uh, freedoms uh, uh, allowed to you. You can think about the freedom of an independence and self-determination of your own people, of your own nation. And I think that's something that we ought to think about um, closely. And how do we participate in, in this particular um, aspect of a war in Ukraine that's not just a Ukrainian, uh, a, a war in Ukraine within those boundaries, but how this does affect the rest of the world as well. Maybe we can figure out a way to get this podcast, uh, in, you know, in front of uh, Russian audiences. I think that I, I'll be 100 percent behind that idea. Michael, uh, listen, uh, really appreciate you coming on talking about this really, uh, really terrible subject. But uh, it's inspiring to hear the work that you're doing on this, the effort that's being made, the important work that's being accomplished. Uh, thanks for coming on and, and talking to us about it. Lester, I, I do appreciate this opportunity because, again, it, it, it's a matter of showing a different perspective or a perspective that that may not necessarily be on the front line, uh, the front pages of, uh, of major newspapers, but it needs to be addressed in terms of what's happening in Ukraine um, and how, again, um, we as average American citizens um, can assist Ukraine to, to win this war, to win the war against, against the aggressor state. Marvelous. Thank you. Thank you. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Gabriella Hensinger and Gabriel Otis for research and production assistance. Join us next time as we continue through the summer to shed greater light on the new means of repression, highlighting aggressive expansionist policies that violate the rights of citizens across the globe and proposing serious solutions the U.S. can take to secure and promote democratic values. Thank you.